from New Orleans, Louisiana, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. Today I'm talking with Jamie Charbonnet. The Charbonnets are a prominent New Orleans family whose prominence derives in part from being among the earliest French settlers of what was then Nouvelle Orléans. The Charbonnets arrived here in the 1760s. Today, Jamie Charbonnet is an entrepreneur and investor. Jamie, what do you know of your family's early history here? In New Orleans, we're a group of families who came during the colonial period. And in my family's case, there were two naval officers, a lieutenant and a captain. Mm. And they were both married together, um, the double marriage. Uh, I think it was in Natchitoches mm -hmm. in about 1763. And part of the family went out to what is now Haiti. So there were plantations there in, in Louisiana. And deeply rooted in, in New Orleans. Well, like most things, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, in New Orleans, it's so many things when I was growing up, because when, when I was growing up, it was still a, a very small town, mm -hmm. and the traditions were much more intense than they are now. What do you mean? How are they intense, the traditions? Well, the separation, I suppose, of groups, mm -hmm. um, and you would even say classes, was very distinctive. Yeah. Um, my father and mother sort of broke out of that pattern in the sense that uh, my father married someone from away to, to sort of, I think, uh, make things more exciting. You mean away like from outside of New Orleans? Outside of the where, town. Where did your, uh, what did your dad do? He was a lawyer. Lawyer. And your mom? My mother was from Massachusetts. And so they got married and they had a very eclectic set of friends. They loved to go to the races, they loved to go gambling, mm -hmm. they loved to have parties. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it was Tennessee Williams, and literally, and, and that whole group. And, wow. And it was uptown, and it was the racetrack crowd. So was, they would was, hang out with Tennessee Williams and... Oh, abs absolutely. There was a whole crew of people. Um, there was a, a character called uh, Dick Arm, who's a great friend of Tennessee's, and, and another guy called... Um, hmm. God, what was his name? Harold Bartell. I think Harold Bartell owned a building in the French Quarter mm -hmm. in which both Tennessee Williams and uh, Dick Arm had kept apartments. Wow. And do you, were, and do then, you remember these years when your oh, parents well, would... Yeah, I do, because I, this, I was born in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were always together. I mean, there was just a crowd. They were partied constantly. Do you remember any stories about Tennessee, or did you meet him when you were a kid? I met him when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, another great friend of my mother's was some, and my father's was someone called Virginia Hellis, and she was sort of a legend mm -hmm. in her day. She bred racehorses, and, and um, she was very much a part of that crew and sort of brought them to my parents. I Tell think. me, where, where did you fall in the class structure that you're just kind of describing? or that you're uh, insinuating, and what was that like for you? Well, you know, I, it, you know that's a hard question. I, you know, you grow up in New Orleans, and you're from an old family, and they have a lot of traditions. And, and in, when I was growing up, um, my father's family, they still spoke French among themselves. And mm -hmm. I, did, I, I didn't learn French, which is uh, I've always considered something I should still compensate for. Mm -hmm. But in New Orleans, every... Body, no matter where, what neighborhood you were from, there were deep roots and everyone had a sense of, of time and place. Mm -hmm. And I think what I miss the most in, when I compare now with then, yeah. I don't think I ever saw a rude person growing up. Yeah. I spoke to anybody who wasn't kind, mm -hmm. no matter who they were. It could be the simplest person on the street. Yeah. It could be the woman who was a black woman selling blackberries on the street, literally, yeah. looking like a mammy. 
and she was kind and polite. I, I just versus now about, you see people just, being rude to each other. The lack of civility, a concern for anybody other than themselves, is 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 a shocker. Well, you, you, I, alluded, to me. you alluded to the fact that it could be a double-edged sword, being from a big family that's been here for a long time. What do you mean by that? Or what did you mean? Well, by it's that? a very inbred culture. It's it's not very open to outsiders. Mm -hmm. I was brought up really with a lot of outsiders and different types of people. Mm -hmm. So I found it stifling. I found it even as a child boring. Mm -hmm. uh, I rebelled. I rebelled. I mean, I drank way too much and I, I tended to like people who weren't necessarily from the group I was supposed to be with. I mean, Why just not? out of, just to learn something else. What was I mean, my friends, I have friends whom I love, I mean, because yeah. I grew up with them, but they really still see the same group of friends that we grew up with. They, you know, they have business friends, but they still separate often business from the people they hang out with. Yeah. And um, I just, from the, when I was very young, I just found that difficult. I mean, I went to Ole Miss, and I can remember having friends who were from different ethnic backgrounds, for yeah. instance. And um, I can remember one particular friend of mine whose parents were Lebanese, and they were, you know, from uptown standpoint, they were flashy. And I was inviting him to come to New Orleans and be with us. Mm -hmm. But I told him he couldn't drive a Cadillac, <laughs> that he would please not take $100 bills out in public. That was unattractive. Would he, would oh he at least get 20s? I mean, I would, I'd then tell him what he had to do. So I would, <laughs> before I brought yeah, him home. Socialize him to bring him back. Was, you know, just because, you know, none of, you know, it was too much. Did but, you see But things? I liked him. Well, he sounds like a colorful person. Right, he you was. Know? He was my friend. But, you yeah. know, my, we had no people from that sort of, in those days, I never met anybody like that. Well, you, you were mentioning drinking too, and um, was there, how bad did drinking get for you? Well, by the time I was 22, my blood pressure was 190 over 145. Oh, Lord. Because I was, uh, you know, a lot of issues from my childhood, and so I was, I'm sure, an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, and the doctors got hold of me, and they said, you've got to lose, I had to lose 30 pounds. How did you overcome some of that childhood stuff, and what was that stuff, well, and, and what did you do to, you know? You know, in truth, I think the only rule that we had in our chaotic household, which was, uh, you could be mad as a hatter, but you couldn't be impolite. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, you must be polite and you must be civilized. And when you go I out, mean, kind of is, you have to contribute. Those are like two opposing things in a way, because it's like Matt as a hatter suggests that your behavior would be. It was you know, the intrusive. only glue I saw. Was a was a certain politesse, mm -hmm. and I have to say that I was also trained never to go out if I couldn't contribute. If I was not going to go out and and be well behaved, yeah. or at least be kind or, or interested in what was going on around me and contributes in some sense, right. don't go out. Well, it seems and like, I don't go out if I'm not in a, good, a mood that I want to deal with people. Well, well, was one of your parents more unstable than the other, you think? Uh, absolutely. And that, my mother's family, there was much more mental illness there. Like what kind time. of mental illness are we talking about? Um, I would say, uh, my uh, mother had a mild case of schizophrenia. Okay. What kind but of, she, do you remember what kind of symptoms she might have had? Um, hallucinations mm -hmm. at times. It would lose, it would, a reoccurring hallucination about being um, pursued by mm -hmm. a male, which was truly the result of a trauma when she was growing she, up. I see. And I even figured that out because it was re from the time I was young, she would claim there was someone in the closet or oh, wow. someone had uh, pursued me or driven home and followed so me. So here you back. are in childhood and your mom is saying these things. And when, as a child, you, we, one, can often feel like your parents are like gods. Right. And 
you know, what was it like for you, or when was the moment when you found that, that, wow, mom doesn't know what she's talking about here, or she's, she's not telling the truth about something? Well, you know, it's odd, but my very early sense was to take care of my parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was four years old, because mm-hmm. <laughs> things were haywire. And uh, so your first memory of things being haywire was as early as four years old. Then. Oh, even earlier. Wow. Because of, you know, passing out, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, your mother not being, well, but I mean, I had obviously someone who was she always was there taking care of me. So she didn't have to tend to that. Yeah. But the drinking became very serious by the time I was three years old. Okay. So uh, I about just... the delusions that she was having? When, when did you realize that those were false? Uh, when I was about 17 years old. Really? I oh, started wow. putting the patterns together. When did you when did you find out just the for you know take it forward a little bit um, as a seventeen year old onward how did your childhood affect you um, in the in your earlier years you think well it made me an extrovert because I wanted to get away mm-hmm. so I don't think my natural disposition was to be as extroverted as I am now I think it was really? a way to bridge from this out to the world to have my needs met. Okay. And I learned to, you know, I, I like people. Yeah. Uh, I've been fortunate to have had, you know, a great many friendships in my life. And uh, I'm sure that's a saving grace in my life. Yeah, and you, you, you have love, lots of people love you. Well, I, and, because and I love you. them. Yeah. If you love, yeah. it comes back. It's, right. But you have to be vulnerable. You have to be willing, willing to give. To, yes. to get. You can't say, well, and you have to let it go. I mean, sometimes you can say, I love that person. They don't like me. That's fine. So well, tell, you tell me, you're an entrepreneur and an investor. What needs do you have socially do you think that are met by friends and, and people that you don't think your family met when you were younger? Well, that's a hard... Could you rephrase sure. that? It's, well, so I'm not you, too you said clear that you left, you left um, your house without needs being met right. in, a, in a way because your mom right. was, uh, had mental illness and... And I'm not certain about your dad. Was he not around as much? Or was well, it my father attention? committed suicide, so let's oh, make that a picture. Okay. How old were I you? I mean, since we're having a confession. Yeah, well, how old were you when that happened? 15. 15, okay. Right. My God, what's that like when you're a 15 year old and that happens? Uh, it's a tragedy, but it's, I don't know, somehow it's on one hand, it, it made me because I just sort of stood up and started handling things. And I understood it. Uh, I wasn't angry. I've never been angry about it, and I can understand his thinking and it, the process. What was he thinking, do you think, um, at the time? He thought it was a logical thing to do from a business standpoint because of indebtedness. Okay. And he, he had insurance policies that would uh, uh, you know, clear, that up. clear it up. But in fact, they did not because they were double indemnity for accidental death. Oh. But he made it appear as if it were an accident, but it was indeed planned. Did you, um, um, how did you find out about Found, find out about your father's death? Uh, a, a maid who worked for the family mm-hmm. received a telephone call, and mm-hmm. she had been my nurse. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carrie walked up to me, and she said, your father's dead. I mean, he's been in an accident. And I said, no, he's dead. Mm. And I said, you'll drive me downtown. And we'll f- my mother was downtown waiting for him mm. um, in a store that was called uh, Stevens, I think mm-hmm. Porter Stevens. Because they were going to go on a trip and they were going to choose some clothing for him. How did he? How did he die? By jumping in front of a truck. Wow. And making it. It was not a fall. It was a jump. It was a jump. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's pretty. I mean, that's pretty devastating news to get at any age. Um, how did you process that and move on from that? 
you know, it, it took 10 years, in fact. And it really came to a head, if you, you from a psychiatric standpoint, will understand this. On my 25th mm -hmm. birthday in New York, mm -hmm. I was having a disagreement with my mother over some family property that had been my grandfather's, that had been left to me. And um, she said, it's yours. And then she wanted to renege on it, but you know, it was mine. Mm -hmm. So I woke up in a, on my 25th birthday in New York, and sort of like a character in a Walker Percy novel, I decided I'd better dress properly because I thought I might commit suicide. And oh, I went wow. walking down the street in New York, and this is a God's truth, somebody walked up to me mm -hmm. and said, I'm very busy and I feel compelled to ask you, is there anything I could do for you? And I said, yes, it's my birthday, and there's a barroom right there. Let's go have a drink. Mm -hmm. This is a friend of yours that you were No, someone I'd never seen in my life. And they walked up to you? They walked up to me. And they said, what? I feel compelled to ask, is there anything oh. I can do for you? And oh. I, he, he was a person a few years older than do I. Do you think that you were looking kind of uh, I'm sure I looked very distressed. confused. I'm sure that... What was the trigger again for you feeling bad that on your, this particular If this was all coming up from my subconscious, and I figured it out this day. Jamie, let's leave it there for just a moment. We'll take a very quick break and come back to you and a stranger in a bar in New York. I'm talking with investor and entrepreneur Jamie Charbonnet. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. This is Mindset. We'll be right back. back to Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. I'm talking with entrepreneur and investor Jamie Charbonnet. Jamie, your mother is, as you described her, mildly schizophrenic and alcoholic. Your father intentionally threw himself in front of a truck and killed himself. It's your 25th birthday. You're in New York City. You've been having a bitter argument with your mother about a piece of family property that you've inherited. And now a total stranger walks up to you on the street and asks if he can help you. You suggest that you both go into a bar and get a drink. Uh, let's pick it up from there. So I walk, we went into the bar, we got a drink, and then I started realizing this property stands for my grandfather, my father, and mm. now, and so I started talking to him, and he said, what's up? And I said, look, what is really going on mm -hmm. is, you know, my father's suicide, which is an issue, and it's coming up in my subconscious, mm -hmm. and it's manifesting itself through this property dispute mm -hmm. that I'm having. And um, I figured it all out. And wow. it turned out that this guy was a prince. He was Roman. He worked for Vogue, and he was a photographer. So oh. I learned a few lessons. <laughs> Number one, wow. I've always listened to everybody else, so it's only fair that when I'm in, in crisis, someone should listen to me. Number two, if you're halfway attractive and decently dressed, you have a better chance of being saved. <laughs> <laughs> So those are my life lessons I mean, from that experience. That's a Norlinian way on take on suicide, I think, you know what I mean? And then I took myself home and went to a, a shrink, Dr. Adato, who was very fine. Oh, yeah? To deal with that specific issue. Yeah. And when Dr. Adato told me that I was actually sane, I doubted that he was a very good psychiatrist. Really? <laughs> but he said, you really are? Because he said I understood myself and I had a basis. Well, do you think I that might be reassuring to have a trained psychiatrist say, you know, we think that you're actually okay. Right. What's it like living in New Orleans with, you know, with all the debauchery going on and stuff? Uh, did it ever get the best of you? Um, I, well, 
how do I answer that question? Did it? No, it never got the best yeah. of me mm -hmm. because I, you know, there's a basic kind of Catholic consciousness. I am mm -hmm. overly scrupulous, mm -hmm. and it's kept me out of trouble, but it stopped me from having a lot of fun, probably <laughs> at the same time. Right. But you know, in my, in when I was really, you know, when I was in my twenties in New York, I had, I kept having affairs with married women because mm -hmm. I didn't want to get married because yeah. I knew that given my family history and I didn't know. You so know, you're saying by being with a married woman. Uh, the, the, but the it, problem it, it was they would, they would have so much fun with me because I was and I'd go no no I'm just fun. Right. The real world is your husband. Go back to the real world. I'm not going to support. Did you fall children. in love with any of these women? Well I, I loved them but mm -hmm. I wasn't in love. Mm -hmm. No and I never wanted to break you know and then I said well this after doing this for several times I realized this wasn't a very you know, right. good thing to do. And my consciousness again came into play. So, and I almost got married. I lived with uh, somebody called Diane for three years in New York, and we mm -hmm. came very close to getting married. What happened to Diane? Um, I realized that she was enough like my mother that it was oh, not a good okay. idea. Once that came became clear, then I realized I'm out of this. You alluded to taking care of your mom when you were a kid. Has that pattern played out in your adult life, where you kind of take people under your wing and care for them? It it, it has in in. Less so now, mm -hmm. but certainly a lot of my life has been spent that way. What kind of people do you tend to take care of, you think? Or I think I tend to take care of, um, uh, obviously, younger people, because I've had so many younger people who I've mentored, mm -hmm. and they just appear. And, and I go, okay, the, the gods have sent this. I've even had people I didn't particularly care about mm -hmm. that I just said, well, I'll have to just be open and, I suppose, um, you know, do anything I can to, to sort of make this person figure themselves out, help them figure themselves out. you feel out. like yeah, there's times when people are delivered to your doorstep, so to speak? I, where, I think there are, there's a lot of fate in life, a lot of kismet in life. I, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, I do believe in reincarnation. I don't think that things are just by chance. Uh, I, I think we have opportunities. We can do with them what we will. Have you had previous lives, you think? Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah, Look, you, I, I tripped across one when I was traveling with Diane in um, Florence. Really? 1979-80. What happened there? I got to Florence. It was the first time I'd been to Florence. And, I mm -hmm. got, and Diane said, look, we were skiing, and I had a little skiing accident. And, she, and so she said, what do you want to do? I said, you know, I've never been to Florence. Let's do Florence. She said, mm -hmm. it's my favorite city, and I can't wait for you to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, she knew I was going to She apparently had the same sense, but she didn't say anything. When I got there, I recognized things. She had had the same feeling. So you recognized things that you... you I even you, figured out who I'd been. Wow. I, I started having, recognizing things from that period of my life. What do you think? Who do you think you were? I, I, I would prefer not to state that. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. The, the audience would vote for me to go back, <laughs> not to a doctor, daughter, perhaps you. Well, do you? I'd be well. But but I do know exactly who it was, and I actually had a connection with someone. Um, I inherited someone who was when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. His father had been a very close friend of mine, and uh, that person. I had known in the 15th century, and it's a long wow. story. I'm not going to trouble anybody you, with that. Let me that. ask you, do you ever get sad? Well, I think everyone has sadness. Yeah, how can, you, how can you be intelligent and sensitive and go through life and not be sad for so many things to be sad no, about? No, you're absolutely right. It's normal to be sad, but I mean, um, but you're a pretty positive guy, and I was wondering then, when do you tend to get sad if you did? Or Well, yeah, I think I don't drink much anymore. 
So I don't get much sadness in the sense it's something I cannot handle. You think handle. drinking would affect your mood? I, I think it's, it affects your sleep, it affects yeah, your yeah. pattern. So when I find now, and I've done this for quite a while, that if I'm, when I'm going through periods of stress, mm-hmm. I compensate for it by sleeping more, mm-hmm. going to the gym, mm-hmm. making sure I stay. If I'm going to drink, I'm going to be in a really good mood. Mm-hmm. So I've learned not to use things that, it, you know, when you're going through stress, and you know it and you understand yourself, there's no point in adding to it mm-hmm. or acting it out inappropriately. Just mm-hmm. accept it. Right. So, in, And then do the things that you can to monitor it and to make it less complicated. So far, uh, what have been the highlights for you, either in business or work, love, um, in your life, that you, things that you thought you were really special to you? Well, I had a period of 12 years being with somebody who, who died. And when she died, that was, which was God, seven years ago now. And uh, that was a, probably the most, um, that was probably an experience of, of consistency that I'd never had in a relationship for so, as long a period. So we both understood each other. We both loved each other. Yeah. And it was on a very... Um, Understood. There was no. Was this romantic? More friendship? It was. It was romance, but less romance. Yeah. And I think more mental and emotional understanding. Sure. But in the initial phases, there was some. Somebody romantic. like you lived next to, like. For yeah, well, with and, and around with and, and around. traveled yeah. and, and did things and not. So I think that was gave me what I didn't have in my childhood, um, which was a stability. Stability and consistency. How old was your dad when he uh, when he died? Fifty three. Fifty three. When you turned fifty three, assuming you're, like, I was happy. A little bit over that. Older I was, than you, that. You're damn right, I am, and what, I was uh, what happy. Was, yeah. What was that like for you? Well, that was a milestone, as it usually would be under those circumstances. Sure. I was very aware I'd made it to past fifty three. You know, one of the problems. Is that something was, you had thought about ever since that that day that he had died? Like, I thought, in, I wonder what it'd be like to be older than my father. Yeah. I think that's normal, no matter what, what your parents thought. Yeah, of course. Um, but I think uh, listeners would appreciate knowing what it's like to be to grow older than your dad after he had passed. Well, you know, I was always worried about not being bright enough because one of the things I grew up with, I, I had a certain, uh, I'm sure it's attention deficit disorder. The family situation was such it was hard to be calm enough to focus. Well, sure. And then when my IQ, they discovered my IQ was high enough that my mother, who would say, you're an idiot, um, mm. she couldn't believe that my IQ was as high as it was. She sounds like it's pretty abusive. Yeah, it was, oh, no question on yeah. that level, was emotionally. You're not as smart as, as I am, you're not as smart as your father, you're yeah. a disappointment. And my father was in law school at 16. So you're com- competing against some Yeah, and my mother, my mother got into Johns Hopkins and didn't go to Johns Hopkins oh, wow. Medical School. She went to veterinary school, and she was either the first or second veterinarian really? female in the country. Wow. And then married my father, and he said, you, you may not work. You know, was, in his uh, mind, that wasn't an attractive thing to do. Yeah. So, so for you, but why do you bring up being as smart as your dad when we're talking about how what it was like it to took grow me older until I got into my 50s to be comfortable with the fact that I was in, as intelligent as I possibly may be, that I wasn't an idiot, oh, yeah. or that I had a good mind. And it had something to do with a lot of things that I know and a lot of people I know and a lot of experiences I've had. But yeah. that, that was one of the harder things I had to issue about not living up to uh, the expectation. And was it a, an, 
in a way. That's one of the reasons I rebelled at school. I mean, I refused. I suppose I went in the opposite direction. I refused to care. I wouldn't even go to exams. I'd flunk out. I'd do anything I could because I was just because angry. kind of rebelling. Rebelling. And anger, that was part of my anger about the suicide, you, I'm sure. When you made it to 53, were you thinking, well, I was smart enough or intelligent I'm smart enough, enough to, to get be, to, to this point? Absolutely. Okay. And that was I think I came to terms with, well, I'm smart enough to get to this point and go on. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. I, I right. Think. Do you, what are your hopes for your, your future here and, and, you know, and maybe being here in New Orleans, New Orleans, can you talk a little bit about, about that? The atmosphere that's created here, the climate, the, the architecture, the culture, the, 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 really we have myth in this town. Yeah. We have myth in, in all of these crazy Mardi Gras organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Are you part of that too? The you know, I, I decided I, when I was a kid that I'd had, an, I did so much of that growing up in so many parties, and I love it, but I could never do that on an annual basis. But I just, it, but you, you, I mean, I love the, I love the public. You know, part. the pomp and circumstance that goes around with some of the, uh, the different crews and whatnot, right? Sure, yeah. sure. And it's, it's wonderful, and I love my friends who really do Mardi Gras, and, the, yeah. and they, they all claim it do, it's not really important on their thing. Yeah, and they say that I think because they feel they have to say that, but they they really love it and they do a wonderful thing for the city. Yeah, I mean the public aspect of the private organizations and crews that do the wonderful things in the streets of New Orleans, it's a gift to everyone. Right. It, it it it's a continuation of what makes New Orleans. In, in fact, that we did it right after Katrina. Oh yeah. yeah God, when yeah. I think of the group of friends of mine who got together to to make that happen, I thought at first, I wonder if that's a little frivolous under the circumstances. Sure. And then once they did it. And I actually, yeah, I remember, I remember having time. to give, a cousin of mine was debuting that year, and I promised to give a party, and it was called off because of the Christmas thing after thing. And then I gave it. She was queen of a carnival ball. And then her friends came in from school, and then she was, ball was, I think, on Friday, and I gave a dinner party for 90 people at right after Arno's Katrina. on Saturday, the, fin- the, fo- the following night. The Mardi Gras after Katrina. Right, and I yeah. thought, you know, at first, I, it, and her mother said, you don't have to do this if you're, and at first I thought, God. Why did you do it, you think? <sighs> well, life has to go on. My life, the party must I mean, go it's just on, like right? a jazz funeral, the, the, fu- the fugue and the sadness, and yeah. then the march out with the, you know, life goes on and the happy music comes. I've been talking with Jamie Charbonnet. Jamie is an entrepreneur, an investor, and above all, a New Orleanian. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. Thank you for joining me on this edition of Mindset. Mindset is produced by Jennifer Casey with technical direction by Eric Merle for itsneworleans.com and INO Broadcasting. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer, now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.